Our reading is from the book of Luke, chapter 8, verse 22 to 56. Luke 8, 22 to 56. One day Jesus said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and wake him, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the winds and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? he asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they ask one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. They sail to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I begged you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this to the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them, because they were overcome with fear. So he got in the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return home and tell how, God, how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over how much Jesus had done for him. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl of about twelve, was dying. 
As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. In this part of Luke's account of Jesus, there are extraordinary events. They are very extraordinary. Look, Just look at how it starts in chapter 8, verse 22 there. One day Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of a lake. So they got into the boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep and a squall came up on the lake so the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He rebuked the wind and the raging waters and the storm subsided and was calm. And that is extraordinary. That really is extraordinary. Uh, there are people in a boat, many of them fishermen, and that fishing these very waters that they're on, they're, they're, and yet, uh, as familiar as they are with it, they are just terrified. And Jesus just gets up and rebukes the wind, talks to the wind and the waves, the whole thing dies down. That, that is extraordinary. Or look at the next episode in verse 26. Look at verse 26. After, you know, they sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, across from the Lake of Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, the man had worn clothes, no, not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I beg you not to torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by demons to solitary places. And that's extraordinary, isn't it? Jesus goes across, now he's in Gentile territory, a place known as the Decapolis, ten cities. And in his region, there's a guy, he's, he's demon-possessed, he meets this man, he's been imprisoned, really, 
by these demons. Uh, he's so oppressed, actually, that the communities had to chain him up because he's so dangerous and so under, out of control. And Jesus commands these demons, speaks to them, gives them permission, and they go into a herd of pigs. They rush down a steep bank and are drowned, and a man is released and freed and back in his right mind. That's extraordinary, right? And it just doesn't stop there. In, in verse 40, Jesus continues to the other side of a lake. He meets his man Jairus. He's the ruler of a local synagogue. He pleads with Jesus to come with him because, because his daughter, who's a 12-year-old girl, so a little girl in year six, is dying. On his way, Jesus agrees to go, but on his way, Jesus gets touched by a woman. Uh, she's been bleeding for 12 years. No one's been able to heal her. And yet she's touched just the edge of his cloak and the bleeding stops. That 12 years, that, that's extraordinary. And then he gets to the house where the year six girl is, not only to find that she is sick, but in fact that she's dead. And Jesus just walks into the room, takes her by the hand and says, my little child, get up. And her spirit returns to her. And at once she stood up and she's alive again. And Jesus tells them, look, they're so gobsmacked. He says, give her something to eat. Because it is extraordinary. Just an extraordinary, remarkable event. We call them miracles. In the Bible, we call them miracles. And they are confronting. Unless, of course, you're gullible. Which maybe the average church has got a, a higher degree of gullible people, right? Not this church, not at all, right? Not, not us. Um, but if some of you... Some, some of you here are Christian, many of you here actually are Christian, you've been Christian for some time and, and you've been touched by the work of the Spirit of God in your life in such a way that you have a great appreciation of who Jesus is and just how powerful he is and what he is capable of and that has been part of the air that you've been breathing really for quite some time and so Jesus doing this stuff, I mean for you, it's, it's, of course he can, I mean it's, he's Jesus, he's the Son of God. And look, that is a wonderful place to be. If, if that's your here, that is a wonderful place to be and that your reaction to a passage like this is as straightforward as that. That is wonderful. But for many of the people who live in our city, right, who live in the city or city of, of Wagga, and um, if, you went up to some, if you went up to them and said, you know, someone told a storm to shut up, and it did, they'd go, yeah, right. The idea that someone could raise a dead girl back to life again They'd be incredulous and say, I mean, do you believe in Santa Claus as well? Our world's attitude to passages like this can be just so dismissive. And it's worth that kind of, it's worth pausing before we actually get into what Luke is doing as he uh, explains what Jesus is doing here for us. But it's important, I think, to try and avoid how do we, do, how do we, how do we cope with a passage like this? What do, what do we do with it? Interestingly, some people in some churches around the world have found the passages like this just all too much, all too much. There was a movement, uh, it, happens, it happened in the last hundred years, it's called the, uh, it's called the liberal Christian movement, and uh, you might, don't think liberal in terms of politics, but I'm not quite sure why it gets called liberal in terms of Christianity, but what they did is there were people there who had a desire to bring the good news of Jesus to as many as possible, they had that desire, but they felt that a lot of the miracle stuff was so impossible for sophisticated, modern, 21st century people to believe that they thought, well, the way to bring Jesus to them is to downplay it 
or to strip it out. And so there was this movement to demiracleize the work of Jesus and rather portray these things not as actual historical events of what actually happened, but figurative myths, inspiring messages where people were encouraged to think that, look, this, this event really didn't happen. It's more myth than truth. Or there's truth in there. It's a story. There's truth in there. It's a myth. It's a story. We just need to read the accounts as primitive accounts, but there is truth to find. And we find the truth within the myth. And they would have thought that this would be more acceptable to a sophisticated, evolved 21st community. Now, there's lots of problems with that view, right? And I grew up in a church that had that kind of view, so I'm quite familiar with it. The problem with this kind of view, though, there are heaps of problems. But one of the problems you have, though, with that kind of attitude is just a sheer number of accounts that we have of Jesus doing these kinds of things. Just, they're massive. Uh, Because you've got to keep remembering the Bible is not just one book. It's not just kind of one piece of evidence for Jesus. This is one of the issues they've got to face. The Bible is rather a collection of books kind of a collection of evidences bound together. You see, if I, if, if, if I was a lawyer going to defend someone, wanting to prove a case, I mean, what, what would you do? What would I do? I mean, you go and interview the eyewitnesses, you'd write down the accounts of what they did, you'd, you'd push into their accounts and test it, you'd get as many accounts as you could, you'd write it all up, you'd put it into a folder, and you'd put it down on the on the, on, the, on the bench of the judge to say, here's, here's the evidence for my case. And if the judge says, oh, that's a weak case, you've just got, you've just got one folder of it, you've just got one piece of evidence, one folder. I mean, what would you say to the judge? You go, no, 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 this, it's a folder full of evidences. It's not just one bit of evidence, there's all sorts of interviews in here. That's what the Bible is. It's just not one book, but kind of many books bound together to make it convenient in the one big volume. So you've got to, you've got to that, that people have this kind of demythologizing view, you've got to deal with that. The fact that we've got so many different accounts of it. But what's fascinating is when you look at all those additional, all those accounts, and you've got to take this into consideration as well, is that they all do speak with one voice. There's a sense that they're not, they're not contradictory. They're not precisely the same. You'd never expect actually the accounts to be precisely the same. That actually is a, 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 a evidence that you cook the books. That, that idea that if, you know, if, if you're at school and a, a bunch of kids have done something naughty and you bring them all in and their deputy principal or the principal interviews them, and if they've all got precisely the same story, you know what the principal's thinking. Oh, they've got tigger behind the scenes and they've fabricated a story and that's why all the details are precisely the same. Now, now what you expect from real historical events is someone sees it from, you know, they're standing over there, someone's standing over there, they see, the same, they see an event over there, slightly different perspectives. So the way in which they report it will be slightly different, although the very substance of what is said will, be the, will, will not be contradictory, they're just slightly different angles of seeing it. That's actually what you have in the, in, in the scriptures. It's not a fabricated story, it's just there are slight differences because of different perspectives. And in addition to that, you've actually got writers outside of the Bible accounts, not even with the people writing in the scriptures, but other historical records from people who weren't even followers of Jesus, but speak of Jesus as a wonder worker. It, all this kind of stuff just makes it very hard to be, just, 
so simply dismissive of the miracles. And I think another difficulty you have in dismissing the miracles is even in the way in which they're reported to us, the way in which they're recorded to us, the fact that it's non-sensational and it's just kind of a matter of fact this is what happened. You know, when people, if you read kind of old mythologies and stuff like that from the Greeks and others, you know, they, they, they kind of, they, it's beated up into something exciting and, and they, 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 they kind of knit their stories rather than facts. We're here, it kind of reads like this happened, then we went there and that happened. Uh, it, it's all very matter of fact. Um, and then when you add into all that, there's even more to say, when you add into all that, that when the miracles actually did happen, do you see how surprised these so-called primitive people were? Right, I mean, have a look at, with me. Look at Luke chapter 8 again. Look at Luke chapter 8, verse 25, in the second half of the verse here. Luke 8, verse 25, the second half. This is after, you know, in fear and amazement, in fear and amazement, they ask each other, who is this who commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? Uh, it's not like, oh man, we've seen this before, you know, or um, we're expecting this to happen. Or they're not a gullible, naive, under-sophisticated group of people who are always expecting this kind of thing to happen. It surprised them like it would surprise us. It's not just in, even in verse 37, look at verse 37 in the account of a demon-possessed man. Look at what he says in verse 37, and it says, Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overwhelmed with fear. And so he got into the boat and left. Again, people were genuinely astonished at what he did. This wasn't their normal experience. Just like with that 12-year-old girl who died, when, when Jesus said she's asleep and not dead, did you notice everyone laughed? You see that in the text, Every, the people were people laughing around him. See, these primitive people, so-called primitive people, they'd seen other people die and they knew what it was to be dead. And without morgues and hospitals like we have today where death is hidden away from us, they had to deal with it far more readily. They were actually more used to death than you and I are. And they knew that dead people didn't come back to life again. That was their common experience. And so for Jesus to suggest otherwise, they're laughing in mockery at him. They're not so gullible, they're expecting it to happen. I think all this suggests that the people who were around when Jesus did these things, they are just like us. Aware that these kind of things are just unusual. And it, it was confronting to them that they actually happened. And, and look, we could, we could go on, there's more I could say about this, but even given what we've seen so far, I hope you're hearing and seeing that you cannot just simply dismiss the accounts here of Jesus doing miracles and just simply say, it's, it's a myth, these things never happened. And you say that in order to make this more acceptable to cynical 21st century Westerners. Now look, I realise even as I'm saying these things right now, there may be people here this morning uh, at church this morning, who are still struggling with the idea that Jesus could even remotely possibly do these things. And can I suggest to you that I think the key, the key is simple. And the key is actually, well, the key is believing in, that there is a God in the first place. That's the key. Because if there is a God, if there is a God, then the miraculous is obvious. It's genuinely obvious. 
If there is a God who has made the world and who governs the movements of the sun and the moon and the stars, who orders the planets, gives us breath and life and, and death, and if there is a God that governs all that, and that God lands on the planet in the person of Jesus Christ, that Jesus as the Son of God walks the world, it should be no surprise that God can do these kind of things. It's perfectly reasonable to believe in the miracles if you can get to the point of believing that there is a God in the first place. So I want to suggest to you that if you're struggling with these kind of things, then the, 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 the root cause is not the miracle itself. The root issue you need to address is are you convinced if there is a God or not? That's the point where you need to wrestle. That's where the rubber hits the road. And if you're here today and you're wrestling with that issue, that's fantastic. We want to help you wrestle with that issue, obviously. Come along to Jesus seriously that we run as well. We, we want to help people. But I think this is where the rubber hits the road. I think once you've got that there's a God, that God can do miracles, well, that's not surprising. And these are the ones he does. Now, I think what will help us all wrestle with that, not just those who are still trying to work out if there's a God or not, but even those of us who, live with, who believe there's a God and, and, and follow Jesus, I think what will help us wrestle with all of this is looking into the details, actually, of the accounts of what actually happened and the various issues that are raised. Because I believe that, that, that Luke puts together these miracles with a, common, with a common thread to them that can help us, well, help us see and, and grapple with the text. Come back to the calming of the storm. Come back to Luke chapter 8 and verse 21. In the lead up to this moment of the calming of the storm, Jesus has been teaching for quite some time. He's probably had enough of teaching for the moment. It's hard to know exactly why, but he does decide to go to the other side of a lake for a bit of a break. He seems like he's pretty tired. And obviously on the way over there in verse 23, he fell asleep and that squall came up in the lake. So the boat was being swamped and they were in danger. And the disciples went to wake him and said, Master, Master, we're going to drown. And he got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters and the storm subsided and it was all calm. And it, I mean, that is impressive, like I said before. I can't even talk to the dog next door to get him to stop barking. <laughs> right? He can just get up and command a storm. And it's not like it's kind of a little bit of drizzle that was going to kind of dissipate anyway. No, it was so bad that seasoned sailors are thinking they're going to drown and it is fascinating. Look at verse 25. In verse 25, once he calms the storm, notice how he talks. He says, where is your faith? That's a stinging question he asks him. Where is your... It's a telling question. He's really saying to him, why are you so afraid? Don't you trust me? Don't you really know who I am? Weren't you there when I healed the paralytic? Weren't you there when I healed the leper? Haven't you seen what I'm capable of? Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Now he can ask the disciples that kind of question, particularly given what they have seen him do already as he's walked on the planet. But I think if you add in something of the Old Testament, you can see even more of why he asks this. So if you've got your Bibles here, Hopefully you can flick quickly. Come back to Psalm 107. Psalm 107. There's actually in the, quite a number of places we could go in the Bible to do this. I think Psalm 107 is a great one. And we'll pick this one for brevity. Psalm 107. We're going to pick it up at verse 1. It's a psalm where 
the writer wants to give thanks to God. There's all sorts of reasons to give thanks. We can tell he wants to give thanks to God. Psalm 107 verse 1. Hopefully you're there now. See how the psalm starts? It says, Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Okay. Thanks God. I want to thank you God. Your love endures forever. God is good. Notice there in Psalm 107 verse 1 that the, the word Lord there is in capital letters. Now when you see the word Lord in capital letters in the Bible... Remember, it's translating the Hebrew word Yahweh, which was God's personal name that he gave to Moses. Give thanks to Yahweh, to God. His love endures forever. He's good. Now, all sorts of reasons of why to give thanks to this God who is good are given. But look at the reason in verse 23. So go, go all the way down to verse 23. Psalm 107 verse 23. Here's one of the reasons to give thanks to God, to Yahweh. It says, Some went out on sea, sea and ships. They were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. For he spoke and stirred up a tempest and lifted high the waves. They mounted to the heavens and went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunkards. They were at their wits' end. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm and he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. Now if you have that in the back of your mind, right, and you come to Luke chapter 8, I mean, what do you have? A group of mariners, sea merchants, out in the ocean and a storm comes up and they're being swamped. And what do they do? Jesus, master, they're going to drown. And he gets up and he, he speaks to the storm and stills it. Just as the psalm says the Lord does, Yahweh does. It's no wonder really in verse 25 that in fear and amazement they actually asked each other, who, really who is this man? And it's no wonder that Jesus is asleep in the boat. It's no wonder that he gets up with some astonishment and says, where is your faith? Don't you get it? Don't you get it? Why are you so afraid you're with me? I'm hoping you can see now that this miracle isn't just Jesus doing a miracle for a miracle's sake or even just to save the disciples' lives. It's exposing his identity to us. Happens again in the next scene. Look at the one with the demon-possessed man and the bleeding woman and the 12-year-old girl. We'll kind of bundle these together. Jesus does amazing things to help these three people as well. But again, it's not miracles for miracles' sake. He does it as a sign to point out something very serious about his identity. Uh, to help you see what the sign is, um, hopefully you still get your finger in Psalm 107. Keep going to the, to the right a little bit and come to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61. Um, I just lost the spotties. They just went somewhere. Um, Isaiah 61. Look, why, why, why you, the reason you're turning to Isaiah 61 is Jesus himself quoted Isaiah 61 in Luke, back in Luke chapter 4 because he actually saw this passage as very significant to help people to understand who he is. This passage will speak of a coming one, one that's coming in the future to bring a great salvation. Isaiah 61, pick it up at verse 1. 
It says there, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance for our God, of our God, to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of despair. Now you want to to pause here and just look at each one of those things that this one will bring. He will bring binding up for the brokenhearted. He will bring freedom for the captives. He will bring release of those, uh, release from darkness for the prisoners and gladness instead of mourning is what he'll bring. And if you've got those things in your mind and you turn up to Luke chapter 8, I mean, what do you do? What do you see? He goes to the Gerasenes and finds a man who is so bound and hand in foot that he's been kept under God, guard, uh, oppressed by evil spirits. And what does Jesus do? Releases him. So that in verse 35, the people went out to see what had happened when they came to Jesus. They found the man from whom the demons had gone out sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed in his right and in his right mind. Freedom for, freedom for the captives? Release from darkness for the prisoners? And then Jesus goes to this woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. No one could heal her. So fearful she was that no cure would ever be found for her. It's been so many years now. And then with a mere touch, Jesus brings restoration to this woman, brings wholeness to this woman, binding up the brokenhearted. Freedom for this woman who's been held captive by her illness for so long. And then what does Jesus do next? He goes to the house of mourning where people are wailing and crying at the loss of a 12-year-old girl. And Jesus says, stop the wailing, takes her by the hand and brings her life. And now there is gladness and joy instead of mourning. Can you, can you see what Luke is showing us as he's bundled all these miracles together? We, we just get caught up actually in just the sheer power of what Jesus is doing. But if you've got these Old Testament things in your mind as you're reading it, you cannot miss the significance that these things are signs pointing us to who Jesus is, pointing us that he's, well, what's our series called? He's the one. He, he, he is the one. He is God in the flesh. Sent to proclaim the good news of the kingdom, we've been told. In. The one who's come to bring in the kingdom of God. The one actually who is, who is the king. Who is God the king. It is interesting that he does say, if he, if he, uh, Jesus did come to preach the good news of the kingdom. And I want to I I I highlight that as, as, as this, that kind of holds together in so much of what's happening here. Because what is this kingdom that Jesus has come to bring? That these Old Testament things are pointing us to. Well, the kingdom of God is a place where the king, which is God, it's where he publicly rules. That's what the kingdom of God is. It's it's an important concept to get because God, in some sense, has always been ruling. He always has. However, there is an experience in life now, says what the Bible says, where we no longer experience the public uncontested rule of God 
Instead, what we live in is a time where God's rule is contested. A time when humans have thrown off God's rule and have said, we don't want a God, we don't want God to rule our lives. We're going to rule our own lives. And we saw last week, this is the essence of sin. This idea that sin isn't just doing immoral things, that the essence of sin is, I don't, oh, I don't want God to be the king, I want to be my own king. And the Bible has made clear that because of this throwing off of the king, we've created this kind of brokenness in the world and fractured the world. And the world that God created as good has been subject to rebellion and decay and there's sickness and the uncontrolled fury of demonic forces and there's the brokenness of nature where it wars against, it wars against us and that is the fruit of throwing off as God as the king and throwing off his public rule in your life. Now, I hope you can see from the Old Testament stuff that there's this expectation that one day, one will come and he'll proclaim the kingdom of God. And he will put God's public rule back, God's rule back in, it, back in public where it belongs, where life will be ordered again and sickness will be banished and sin will be destroyed and Satan and the demons will be locked up and creation itself will be released. And all this is anticipated in the return of the king, which is why Jesus comes preaching the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. And as he comes, the reason I'm, I'm, I'm drawing this groundwork here, the reason he comes is that when he comes, he doesn't just speak about it, he actually brings samples of it. And you get to see actually what the kingdom of God is like in its uncontested rule. Because wherever he walks around, people get to experience the restoration of the world that will happen when the king returns. When sicknesses is cast out and demons are cast out and death is cast out. They're, they're kind of clear tokens and signs of the goodness of what Jesus has come to bring. As he invites men and women to come back under this kingdom and under his rulership. And so Jesus keeps on saying that well, the kingdom of God's near. Time to repent and come, come home, come into the kingdom. But it is interesting, isn't it? Because in this way, what Jesus is doing with these miracles, it's, it's a little bit like what the Allies did in the, at the end of World War II. Some of you will remember World War II. Have anyone done history at school? Hopefully you've know, seen enough TV shows. One of the things, you know, when Hitler was oppressing Europe, and the Allies were fighting back. It wasn't an easy war, but eventually the Allies had, to, had seriously the upper hand, very seriously the upper hand, and the war was definitely coming to an end. But as it was coming to an end, you know, the front line was moving closer and closer into the heart of Germany and things like that. But Hitler had taken many prisoners, and there were prisoner of wars and concentration camps, and people were being used and, 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 and crushed. And, and while these POWs are behind enemy lines... As the war is coming to an end and the front is advancing, you know what the Allies did? They put some planes in the air, flew planes over the enemy territory, and they dropped parcels of food and parcels of medical kits with notes kind of saying, We're coming. And here are the signs of what it's going to be like when we arrive health and food. And life again. And, and that's here what you have with Jesus. He's coming to announce the kingdom. 
bringing the anticipation of the final victory that is going to come when he returns. And as he walks through the planet touching the world, just like those planes with tokens of what it's going to be like, he walks the planet with a token, with tokens of what it's going to be like when God's public rule is finally back in the place where it ought to be. And his news to the world is rejoice and hang on. Hang on, because I'm coming and I'll return. And I think that's where we need to land it today. Because if you're here today and you haven't yet come back to life publicly underneath the king, I want to say, why not? Man, he's such a good king. If there's something holding you back, man, get that sorted out. Come, Come to Jesus seriously. Come and find out more about him. But if you're someone here today and you do know the Lord Jesus Christ and he's You've come back to the king in that way. I think what this passage is, is, is what it's saying to you, it, it is saying hang in there. Hang in there. Because what is common to each of these scenes is the, is the fear that people have. You have a little girl who's died. Jesus tells him not to fear. The woman who's bleeding, she fears there'll be no cure. The man full of demons... No doubt he's afraid, but the people are afraid when they see him in his right mind. Jesus asks the disciples, why are you so afraid? Where's your faith? In the midst of all these fears, Jesus announced, the kingdom's coming, hang in there. And it's fascinating because fear and anxiety is so human. We are all frail. We constantly come to face to face with scary stuff. The next medical test, the next phone call, job uncertainty, money, worries, mental health, there are real anxieties that bear down on us. And Luke, I think, here wants to comfort us with what Jesus is capable of. In each of these scenes, really, we are meant to see that the scope of Jesus' power and authority is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think Luke is showing us that so that our fear of other things should be getting smaller and smaller and smaller. I think especially so as Luke takes us eventually to the cross where Jesus will conquer death for us so that really there is nothing to fear in this life if I have an eternity in a new creation reserved for me. And the reason I say that the application is hang in there is because we're not walking around with Jesus like he was striding through the planet giving tokens to everybody. I mean, wouldn't that be lovely if he was? You know, that every sickness I had, there he was striding through my life, giving me the health. Every friend I had who died, there he was striding through, bringing them back to life again. That would be awesome. It'll be like that when he returns. But we don't live now, like in the day where Jesus was doing these things. We live in a day right now where the king, in a very real sense, is temporarily absent. We're waiting for him to return, longing for these things to come. but we need to hang in there. And sometimes real strength and real courage in the face of real fear is more like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane where he was fearful and fearful of death itself and dying alone, separated from his father. But he knew the bigger picture. And so he entrusted himself to his heavenly father and in the midst of all his fears, cast all his anxieties on him 
and the way forward was through the fears to trust that God had it all in his hand for the future. That's much more like us. Now, the difference this kind of acknowledgement can make in your life is a bit like me watching Parramatta Place in church. My last sermon illustration for church, and here we go. You know, when I watch Parramatta play St George, if I'm watching the game on telly and it's live, you know, I'm all clammy, I'm all anxious, I'm a bit on edge. If we're losing, sometimes I'll just get up and turn it off because I can't bear it. Or I'll turn my phone off because I'm worried what Tim will send me, something like that. But, you know, I often don't get to watch the game live because either I'm at youth group and youth group's on or something else is on. So often I will record it. I record it. On, I record it and watch it delayed. And occasionally, or often enough, someone will tell me the result before I watch the game. And particularly in the last few years, right, the results have been pretty good. And so I can go home and watch the game knowing the outcome, knowing that we're going to win. I cannot believe how a stress-free experience it is. <laughs> you know, even if St George are winning every now and then, it doesn't matter. Because I know how it's going to end. And so it doesn't matter. And that makes all the difference in the moment. Luke is wanting us to feel that about Jesus. You should know how it ends. That he's the great king. Or he's a generous king. He's the king we love and serve. He has unlimited power. And we know how it's going to end, that in the long game, we're forgiven. In the long game, we have restored lives with God. In the long game, we will share a new creation. And so therefore, all those fears and anxieties that we kind of carry with us through life right now, and they are real. They are very, very real. And they probably won't go away. Well, they won't go away completely. I think this passage here here gives us a good option to trust the king who's got it in control, knowing the big picture of the end. Because when Jesus says things like stuff to us, like your sins are forgiven, when he says, take courage, don't be afraid. When he says words like, come to me, all you who are heavy, weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. When Jesus says things like, don't let your heart be troubled, trust in me, I'm going to prepare a place for you when Jesus says take heart because I have conquered the world when he says stuff like that we know he's coming back there's nothing to fear let's pray that we'll do that well Heavenly Father we do thank you for Jesus oh we would love him to be striding through the planet right now not just with tokens but restoring everything and we do pray please come Lord Jesus so, Father, as we wait, as we experience through your word here the tokens of what he's bringing, Father, we are, it's extraordinary. And, Father, we pray that as we live our lives here and now, help us to have that courage like he did in the Garden of Gethsemane, to entrust ourselves to you in the midst of real fears and real anxieties, that we would have the boldness and the courage to stay true to you no matter what comes our way. And Father, we ask that we would wait patiently for the King. Having those fears in perspective. 
and standing firm and hanging in there. And Father, we ask for your help to do these things for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.